This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Amara, Susanna, Julian, Joanna, and Sam VR. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. We'll begin with our serious questions. This week, we have questions from Amara and Susanna. First, Amara asks, if God can't sin, how come he gets angry at his people all the time? Isn't anger a sin? Well, not all anger is actually sinful. Otherwise, the Apostle Paul wouldn't have been able to exhort you in Ephesians 4, verse 26, to be angry and do not sin. So it's possible, apparently, to be angry and yet to not be committing a sin. Now, maybe what the Apostle Paul is doing here is distinguishing between feeling angry and giving in to that anger. Because uh, Psalm 37, 8 says that we should refrain from anger and we should forsake wrath. So you shouldn't let anger take over your actions. But depending on the offense, feeling anger might be justified. So, for example, let's say that you were in war and you witnessed war crimes being committed, you would feel a natural sense of outrage or anger at the evil that had been committed. And you'd feel that for the right reason because what you'd witnessed was wrong. But if you gave in to that anger and it led you to commit war crimes yourself to get revenge, then that would be evil. Now, when it comes to God's actions, though, we have to think about this a little bit differently. You have to remember that the Bible often describes God in human terms, using human language as if he were one of us, when of course he's not. The technical term for that kind of language is anthropomorphism. We use language that describes God as if he were a human being or an anthropos. In reality, God is spirit. He doesn't have a body, he doesn't have emotions, and so he doesn't feel anger because he doesn't feel anything. But when we talk about God's anger or God's wrath, what are we doing? Well, we're following the example of the Bible, which uses those human descriptors to try to describe something, to explain something that is beyond human experience. So when the Bible talks about God being angry, it's not contradicting itself. It's just adapting human language to describe divine realities. So when you think of the anger of God or the wrath of God, don't think of it as, as a kind of like emotion of anger. Think of it as a true and right and just reaction to human sin. And now Susanna asks, how can we all be made in God's image if we are not all alike? Well, Susanna, I guess it depends on what you mean by being made in God's image, right? Obviously, we can say it doesn't mean to be identical copies. It doesn't mean 
uh, for example, that we're all like clones of God because we see that we are very different from one another. We're not identical. We're certainly not clones. So what does it mean to be made in God's image? Well, guess what? The Bible doesn't actually explain this precisely. So when theologians write about the idea of being made in God's image, they try to be pretty careful because the Bible says that this is true of us, but it doesn't exactly tell us what all this means. There are some things that we can say, though, based on what the Bible teaches. It seems to be the case that being made in God's image is what sets human beings apart from all other creatures. Sometimes we associate being made in God's image with having a soul or with rationality when we recognize that human beings are able to to think and reason in ways that are not true of other creatures. Some theologians also point to the fact that human beings have this unique need to worship and connect that to being made in God's image. I think that is a legitimate inference to draw from what the Bible teaches. However, the best explanation that I've heard about how to think about being made in God's image is this. Think of the image of God as a stamp or a mark that's made on a coin when the coin is pressed out. So the image of God is not just an attribute or a talent. It's the the mark that shows who you belong to. Kings in the ancient world, when they stamped coins, would stamp their image on the coins, and that would show who the king was, who was in charge, who reigned. It would show whose power made the money worth something. So God's image stamped on us shows that we belong to him, that we are valuable, that we are worthy of respect, that we are his. That is true for all human beings, regardless of whether they're male or female, rich or poor, regardless of where they come from or the color of their skin. It's true whether they believe in God or not. All human beings are inherently worthy of respect and dignity because we are all made in God's image. And now it's time for the big question. This time, our big question comes from Julian. So let's give Julian a round of applause. Here's Julian's question. If God created everything, did he create evil? Julian, this is a great question. To dig into this, I want to start by looking at some biblical data. So we're going to kind of fill our heads with some evidence from the Bible that'll give us a foundation to to think on. So first of all, let's take the idea, did God create everything? Let's think about that question and look at what the Bible says. So according to the very first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1-1, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. And if you keep reading, you will discover, it's pretty clear that, that by heavens and earth, all creation is in view there, that God did indeed create everything. Now, if we go to the New Testament, we go to the Gospel of John, and we read John's prologue right at the beginning in verses 1 through 3, we hear this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, 
and without him was not anything made that was made. So now we have the Father and the Son both responsible for making everything, and we're told that there's nothing that was made apart from the Father and Son. So nothing is made apart from God. Everything that has been made was made by God. So now the question is, did God create evil? Well, the Bible says that evil cannot dwell with God in Psalm 5, that God doesn't tempt us with evil in James 1, verses 13 and 14, and also that God is light and in him dwells no darkness at all. That's 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. In 1 John 2, verse 16, we read that evil is not of God, but of the world. Now, all of that leads the Westminster Confession to insist that God is not the author of evil, and that God neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. But that does seem to leave us with a dilemma. And on the one hand, God created everything, and nothing that exists was made apart from God. And on the other hand, God did not create evil. Is not the author or source of evil. But the question is, how can both of those things be true? It seems to be logically contradictory. How could God make everything but not make evil? Well, first of all, let me say this. Sometimes the Bible does tell us that two things are true, and yet we cannot figure out how, logically speaking, both things can be true. And the Bible doesn't explain it. It doesn't give us the reason or the logical argument that makes sense of those assertions. Now, the word that we use to describe this is paradox. A paradox is when we have two premises, both of which are true, and yet they seem to be contradictory. And so it's a mystery. It's a paradox how both of these things can be true. A lot of people argue that, logically speaking, either God is sovereign or human beings have free will, but logically it cannot be both. That would be something we would describe as a paradox. Now, Cornelius Van Til, a famous Reformed theologian of the 20th century, compared this kind of paradox to a swing hanging from a tree branch. The knot that holds up the two, two sides of the swing is tied above the branch. And because it's above the branch and you're standing on the ground, you can't actually see the way those two sides are connected together. But we know that somehow the pieces are connected because when you sit in the swing, it holds up your weight. And oftentimes, that's how these biblical paradoxes work, even though we can't explain them logically and, and, and demonstrate how they can be connected. We do know that they hold together because they hold the weight that uh, we put upon them. So we could just leave it at that. We could say God made everything and evil is a thing, but God didn't make evil. And we could just say, well, that's a paradox. That's a mystery. The Bible tells us these two facts, but it doesn't explain how they can both be true, and that's okay. We have to live with the questions that we can't answer. But there are some theologians who feel like we can go farther than that, and I think they have a point. So listen to that logic again. 
I said, God made everything, and evil is a thing, but God didn't make evil. Now, what if one of the premises in that statement is actually false? Now, it can't be the first one, right, that God made everything, because the Bible says he did. And it can't be the final one, that God didn't make evil, because the Bible says he didn't. So that only leaves the middle one, evil is a thing. What if evil isn't a thing? Now, I know that sounds crazy, but just think with me for a moment. I'm not saying that evil doesn't exist. I'm saying it's not a thing. St. Augustine and many Christian thinkers after him suggested that evil was not a positive Thing, rather, it was the absence of a thing. In other words, it was the absence of the good. And this makes sense when you think about how we talk about sin. When we talk about sin, we say that sin is any transgression against God's law or any lack of conformity to it. In other words, anything that falls short of the perfect good is sin. So God is the author of the perfect good. And evil is a word that we use to describe the absence of that good. So anything that falls short of the good is evil. In the same way that darkness, when you think about it, is just the absence of light. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about that, I find it pretty convincing. As I said before, we don't need to be able to explain something logically in order to believe that in the mind of God, it all fits together. But in this case, I think the theologians really do help us when it comes to understanding what evil isn't and what evil is. And now before we close, let's take a look at a few fun questions. This time we have questions from Joanna and Sam VR. And both of them have to do with, well, fun questions. Joanna asks, do you get more serious or more fun questions? Well, Joanna, that's a fun question. To be honest with you, it really varies week to week. When I see the questions that have come in each Sunday, the, the balance tends to shift. Sometimes there are a lot more fun questions than there are serious questions, and sometimes there's a lot more serious questions than there are fun questions. So what I do is I have a master list, and I add all the new questions that I haven't yet answered to that list. And then when I need to make an episode, I'll choose two serious questions from the list and two fun questions from the list, and usually I'll have enough to make that balance out because roughly on the whole, I'd estimate that we get about 50-50 serious versus fun questions, maybe a little more serious questions than fun questions, but more or less, it balances out. So I'm going to go with half and half. And now Sam VR asks, how many fun questions does everyone ask? Well, Sam, that's a great question, and it's a little bit difficult to answer because the reality is sometimes questions get repeated. People forget that they've already asked a question or one person asks a question that somebody else asked. So I think the best way to calculate this is just going to be to go back and look at how many episodes we've already done and how many fun questions we've answered, because really it's not a complete fun question until a fun answer has been appended to the end of it. So let's do the math. This episode is episode 
41. That means that for 41 weeks now, we've been doing the big question. And every week, I've been answering two fun questions in each episode. So if we do the math, 41 times 2 is 82. So that means so far, we've answered a total of 82 fun questions. And there are more fun questions to come. But I think that's probably enough fun for now. Let's go ahead and wrap up the episode. So that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask the questions and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.